caught up enough in, the, uh, in that song to be sitting there for another couple of seconds. All right, so good morning, everybody. Um, and just a few things for you to know. We do have, I um, uh, want to make sure you're aware of this and, and as well as what the stuff that Paul was talking about today, but um, we do really encourage you. We've, we've noticed that within a few days, um, there will often be 2,500 or more views on the Sunday morning uh, service time, which is fantastic and a huge blessing. Um, and views can represent numerous people. One view can represent numerous people. And so our assumption is, we don't know this, but our assumption is that there are, I mean, several hundred people who are seeing us and engaging with us on Sunday morning who may not be here or may not regularly be here when we are able to meet. <laughs> and we really want to encourage you um, if you're one of those people who's viewing this during or, or after at some other time, and you're not invested or connected to a local church um, where you are, if it's not here, then we really want to encourage you to do this. We're honored that you come and, and experience church with us. Man, what a huge blessing. We love it, and, uh, and we're proud of that. And we also want to make sure that you're able to involve yourself in, um, in the discipleship that really is required in a body of believers that you're engaged with and invested with. And on that note, also to know if you're part of our church and part of South Spring, or you want to be, and you're um, especially if you are local, there are life groups that are meeting um, and continuing to meet in various ways, either online or with social distancing, or out in the parking lot, or things like that. And um, if you if you're interested in learning more about what life groups are in, are going on that you can be involved in, and we're trying to figure out other ways even to expand those, then you can email Chris Sherrod on our staff. That's C-S-H-E-R-R-O-D, Chris Sherrod, C-Sherrod, um, at southspring.org, and, uh, and he'll happily send you what we've got going on and, uh, and what's available and, and those kind of things. So, um, so we want to make sure that you have a place to invest and to plant and engage and to be continuing to grow um, in depth. Um, we talk about how even when we're here on a Sunday morning, um, that that's a great version of discipleship, but it tends to be pretty wide and not as deep. And so we really want to encourage you to be involved deeply as well, whether that's a, um, a neighborhood Bible study or engaging with people online or, or whatever it happens to be right now that you can do. Please, please find <coughs> small groups of friends and believers and as a family uh, to be growing together because that's so important um, for sure. And also there's another cool opportunity we have here and uh, and I don't I don't think you mentioned the disc golf course, Paul, this morning. But um, I was talking to Mike Strout this week, who really was the uh, author and perfecter of our disc golf course, um, to be a little irreverent, um, and and really has done a great job with that. And and uh, and he wanted people to know that there actually is a, a South Spring Baptist Church disc golf Facebook page where he can be contacted, and, and he's even happy to to come and and uh, guide you through the course, even during the quarantine time and, and uh, to do that safely. And so there's, and we know families are looking for things to do together to how to get out of the house. Um, as we're learning, it's good to be outside. And so um, I hope you're doing all those different things. And uh, this is a beautiful place that God has gifted us with. Don't hesitate if, uh, if you can do it safely to come out and, and uh, experience outdoors out here. So um, we're excited about that. I also want to share something with you. So it's amazing how um, how easy it is for God to create a teachable moment. And last week, God created a teachable moment for me while I was up here teaching, um, or at least immediately afterwards, as I walked essentially straight down and told Paul, like, you, you won't believe this. Look, look at what I just did. So a page from my notes from last week, 
um, are going to come up. So here we go. We're talking about how amazing it is that Daniel's instinct, <coughs> his first instinct, he and his friends, the first instinct is to go, wow, we just got this amazing information. We asked God to bless us with this. And, and the first thing they do is they pray and they thank God and they worship God and they even write a poem to God. And, and it's just this beautiful thing. And so how about this for painful, painful, and I, I, I will tell you, I actually kind of hurt over this. I was reminded of what it, what it was like to feel like a, a middle schooler in a couple of different ways, and this is just, just like a middle school guy that, when I was a middle school guy, that I thought, man, I had good intentions, but things didn't go the way I wanted, and I felt that with this. If you'll notice, right above the verse on verse 24, right above there was a note to myself to stop and thank God, and I went right past it. Apparently, I needed to highlight it. David knows I sometimes highlight things in my, in my notes. Apparently, I needed to highlight it or bold print it or something like that because like I was confessing last week, my tendency to move past stopping and thanking God for the good things he has done is it's shocking um, how easy that is for me to do. And so I've, we, uh, I have been asking God to discipline me in that, and I feel like this was a little bit of that uh, cold water in the face. So that's actually a page from last week's notes telling me to stop and thank God, and I didn't. So we're going to right now. And I know we've prayed already this morning, but we're going to pray again right now and thank God um, for the incredible levels of blessings that we have. So Father, um, you have blessed us. Um, you've blessed us as a nation. Um, we, we know that just the fact that we can social distance. We can, many of us, stop, <coughs> stop working, and we can have enough to eat anyway, and we, we have enough to close our doors and, and still buy things. And we're, we're still buying um, all types of extra stuff. And God, you just so often, you have blessed us so, so well and so opulently, and we know that, and we know we've not somehow earned being born here. Um, or getting to be here. And so, Lord, I, I pray that we would thank you for that. And, and that would make us so grateful that it would cause us to reach out to those who might not be as blessed, that we would recognize that you are really the one who provides. You are the author and perfecter of everything, um, and especially of our faith. And as we live in that faith, I pray that you would help us to, to look around and to be grateful. Lord, I'm so grateful for our church family who is faithful to serve and to give um, and to come alongside each other, and to continue to learn together and grow together and, and develop new skills that are required by this time. And I'm so thankful that we have those options, that we can even do stuff like this. Um, it's amazing to me for to consider back the brothers and sisters from 100 years ago during the, the Spanish flu. They didn't go live. Um, they didn't have phones that connected them to each other like some kind of magical device. Um, God, they didn't have any of that kind of stuff, and they pulled through, and we are grateful to them, and we're grateful for all of those, and we're grateful for those who are still today pulling that kind of stuff off and doing it, and, and, and God, we're just, we are, we are so overwhelmed by the blessings that you've given us. By the provision of your word, Daniel did not have the luxury of your Bible sitting in front of him. Um, he probably had parts of it, Lord, but God, we, we have the words of your son who came to earth and experienced life as a man, and and spoke these things and his followers who wrote them down and, and we get to go look at these time and time and study them day after day and what an incredible gift. Maybe the greatest, one of the greatest gifts you've ever given us is your word through the power of your spirit and, and Father, I thank you for those who continue to serve, those who work and are working on the front lines at this time um, of all different kinds. 
um, and those who are seeking to serve us. And we pray your blessings and your protection. We thank you for the leaders who make hard calls and who are making tough choices and are seeking to provide and protect our way of life um, and our constitution and all of that, and at the same time, um, provide opportunities for us to be safe. Lord, I pray you help us to be wise in knowing what to do with all that. God, I thank you for my family, for my precious wife, my awesome kids, and, and, and I know that so many of us are so blessed with wonderful families, and, and all of us guys have married up, and we're so, we're so appreciative of the amazing blessings that you have provided, the opportunities to serve each other, and to take good care of each other. God, um, this isn't a poem, but it is a prayer of thanksgiving. Thank you that you allow me to be here and to preach and to teach through this stuff, even though I'm the type of person who skips over my own reminder to stop and pray to you in the example of a sermon of someone stopping and praying to you. Um, surely and truly, your spirit is filled with mercy and grace. And we thank you that that's poured out on us in your son's name. Amen. All right. I know that barely even touches this, all of this kind of stuff, but um, the, the confidence uh, of, of getting the opportunity to live out in what we've got and what God has given to us. We're so grateful. I want to touch on a concept that I want you to be looking ahead at so that it's not a shock to you when we hit it. We're going to hit a concept um, that some of you are very familiar with um, called the divine counsel. Um, and we, you find that discussed probably most clearly in Psalm 82. And so we're not going to get into that today, but I want to encourage you to go ahead and look at Psalm 82. There's some great um, research and podcast materials on the Bible Project podcast, um, the Naked Bible podcast. These are, these are all um, these type of research opportunities, people who do the research to try to discover, especially looking through the lens of the Jewish mindset from 2,000 years ago and, and further back when things were written. Um, and so we're going to run into this picture because it's, it's a mindset that God had this divine counsel that, that when God created His invisible creation, just like He gave us authority in His created visible creation, just like He gave man authority, mankind authority, um, and within His visible creation, that He created certain spiritual beings that had authority within the spiritual creation. That's not strange. That certainly fits in with His character. Um, God loves to share his opportunities to minister and have authority. And yet some of those, just like mankind fell and rebelled, some of those invisible creatures, that visible creation, they rebelled. And, and usually in the Christian world, we kind of divide that very simplistically into bad guys and good guys. We usually say devils or demons and angels. And it's a lot more complicated than that. And when we dig into it, we see there's a lot more to it. But we're going to run into, before we get very far in Daniel, but sometime in the next few chapters, we're going to begin running into signs of this. And even today, there's a little bit of a hint at this idea that there are these angels that are probably, if we want to call them angels, divine beings who were fallen, who are in rebellion against God. There is no God like God. There is no God who is God like He is God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the God of anyone else who would call themselves divine. And yet he, he, he is over them, and yet he created these beings, and these beings were in charge of certain things. And so we're going to run into, for example, in the Daniel, this idea of a, of a prince of Babylon or a, or a prince of Greece, and which seems to sound like these, these divine creatures who had authority over certain regions of the world. And so as we're looking ahead at that and we see that, understand that's the mindset of the people at the time. And obviously, is, there's a, obviously a truth in that. Like I said, if you go to Psalm 82, when it describes God in His divine counsel and, and, and Him actually kind of chewing them out a little bit. And so 
so we'll, we'll talk more about that as we're moving forward, but I don't want it to be a huge shock when we get there, so I want to give you a chance to kind of look ahead and be thinking about it. Um, these nations that we're going to be studying about today, these are nations that greatly affect the nation of Israel moving forward from the time of Daniel, and there's a spiritual power behind that. So we don't want to miss that. So if you remember, Daniel, Daniel gets, um, you know, we have Daniel who gets kidnapped and, or taken in with all the others at the, as the spoils of war with at least a handful of other Jewish boys, taken to Babylon, and then made into servants of the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And then we see him in chapter 1, we see he and his friends not take the king's food, and that that faithfulness is rewarded by God. And then in chapter 2, we started um, back, Paul started just teaching us about this dream that King Nebuchadnezzar was having, and that he called together his wise men and said, I want you to come tell me not only what the dream means, but what the dream was. And they panic because they can't do that, and they say no one could do that but a, but a divine, but no one but a God could do that, no one but the gods could do that. And so this idea is, is kind of important. And so the, the King Nebuchadnezzar says, however, I don't, I don't care what you tell me. If you're able to have insight, supernatural insight, then you should be able to have supernatural insight into this. If you can't, I'm going to have you torn to pieces. And they can't. And so he's about to have them killed. They go to get, the, they go to get Daniel and his friends to have them killed too, apparently. And Daniel says, whoa, 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 give us a little time. Daniel goes to his friends, and, and then they all go to God together and pray during the night, God gives him a vision. This is what we talked about last week. And that's where we ended with him having this vision and understanding the truth of what was going on, knowing the dream and the interpretation. And then Daniel stops and prays. And then they get their friends together. Then he goes to Nebuchadnezzar. And we have that great moment where Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, can you tell me what the dream is? And Daniel says, no. And no one else could either. But there is a God in heaven who can and this is the Jewish God. This is Yahweh. God, can, God could tell you, and he has chosen to do so. That's significant. So here we go. The, the, this, this, here's where we are. And Daniel's about to explain to Nebuchadnezzar what God told him. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. One thing, one great image. The Hebrew is clear to talk about this is a one great image. It's a terrifying shade, like something appearing out of the mist. A great, terrible, frightening, bright, mighty image. And remember that Nebuchadnezzar is troubled by these dreams. So we showed you last week, although it had kind of pixelated for some reason, so hopefully this is a cleaner version, showed you a video that shows kind of the dream. And then I'm going to kind of, I'm going to kind of flesh that out a little bit again. So let's watch that video again real quick of the dream itself. Um, and again, this is a, an artist rendition of the dream, obviously.
So here we have some kind of dream like this. Now, here's what's hard to capture in a video like that, is that not only is this, and I think the video captures well the grandness of the image, the brightness of the image, but I don't know that that video captures well the fact that, that Nebuchadnezzar is frightened, that he's, he's afraid, he's frightened by this image. Um, maybe, maybe it has something to do with this. An important myth in Babylon is the myth of Nimrod and the connection to the story of Babel. Um, the, the biblical fast-forward account of the ancient Bible in Genesis, Nimrod was the great-grandson of Noah. You find him in Genesis 10, 8, and 9. In the Bible, the land of Nimrod was a synonym for Assyria. And in the Bible, he's just described as a great hunter and then being the king of this land. But in, in the region, he, he, who he was became a very mythical person, um, a very grand person. When we went to Israel this last time, we went and visited Nimrod's fortress. So we got a picture. It's this grand fortress up in the northern part of Israel um, where a group of, and later, a group of assassins um, set up shop. But it's this grand fortress. And, and it's certainly this fortress was not built by Nimrod or anything. But here's what's wild. The imagery, as we were taught, is that the reason it's called Nimrod's fortress is that Nimrod set here, but propped his feet down in the valley and used his hand to scoop water from the river down at the bottom. That's clearly a mythical figure, but he was, he was thought of at, in that location through their myths as being this giant of a person, this huge, terrifying human being who is considered to have founded many of the great cultures of the past. Um, all we have in the Bible is his relationship to Noah, and that he was a mighty hunter, that he was a ruler of these various areas, including Babylon. But a lot's been built on his legend over the year. Variously, he is linked to other divine beings um, as to being the person behind the, the, the brainchild behind building the Tower of Babel, um, making himself a rebel against God. In other views, he's one of the Nephilim from the Bible and is a giant person, somehow surviving a surviving descendant of the sons of God and the daughters of men, which doesn't make sense biblically, but that's part of the myth, that he was a grand person. A couple of different pictures that I was able to find looking for pictures of him. Here's an artist's rendering of Nimrod. Um, uh, the, the, again, the grandeur and terrifying nature of his person Here's a statue of either Nimrod. It wasn't the inter- the web pages weren't too clear about that they're sure what this was. But you'll notice that's a lion that Nimrod is holding in his arm to give you a concept of how grand and, and big he was meant to be. That that this is the picture of perhaps of what Nimrod was thought of. And there it stands, this awesome and awful person, this giant of a person. Um, and, and you know how you can get that sense in a dream that something's wrong, this terrifying feeling. The dream makes, may make no sense at all, but this feeling of a terror. But I think Nebuchadnezzar was prepared through the myths of his people to be, to be prepared to fear a giant, terrifying monster of a man like perhaps Nimrod would have been. And I think that's what you're dealing with. When I try to get my head inside of, inside of Nebuchadnezzar's head, that's exactly what I think is, is that he's prepared to find this giant image terrifying and it shows up to him. And then Daniel continues to tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream. The head of this image was of fine gold and its chest and arms of silver and its middle of thighs and thighs of bronze and its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken into pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. 
But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This terrible, awe-inspiring image is violently smashed to dust like grass cuttings. Verse 36, Daniel says, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. So imagine, if you will, and we talked about this a little on the podcast. We were talking about it before as well. Imagine, if you will, someone telling you what you dreamed. Is there anything more inviolable, anything more private than our dreams? I mean, they're 100% purely inside of our own head. And I think we easily could miss the idea that this isn't just someone telling us what our dreams meant. This isn't someone just saying like, you know, oh, you're going you're gonna to meet a tall, dark stranger. Some of the generalized um, uh, ridiculousness that con artist psychics do, that type of stuff is, is just ridiculous. But here you have someone look you in the eyes, and there's a dream you remember, and it's burned into your brain, and without you telling them, and you've told nobody, and this person sits down and says, actually, here's what you dreamed, and they tell you in detail about your dream. I don't know about you, but that would creep me out. That would, that would be incredibly scary to me, and it would also make me very interested to hear what else they have to say. And so I think that's what's going on here. Now we have Nebuchadnezzar. So again, I, for, I told the guys, I feel like this week was about me getting inside of Nebuchadnezzar's head and starting to feel like he's had bad sleep, he's angry and he's irritable, he's frustrated, he's a relatively new ruler, he's had, been all, under all types of pressure, <coughs> he has this dream probably multiple times. He's so troubled by it, but he doesn't trust anyone in his kingdom enough to tell them the dream. And so he brings his wise men, and they're utterly worthless to him, just worthless. So he's irritated, angry, sleepy, tired, um, all these different things, and, and, and this surreal sense of, of he's going to wipe out all of his own wise men, and what is that going to mean for him? And, and then this boy, this Hebrew boy, gets brought before him, and without missing a beat, this young boy tells him exactly what he dreamed. I would think that would be a strange, surreal experience. And that's where I think he is. And now Daniel's going to keep talking. Now we, and by the way, wait, we? We are going to tell the king its interpretation? Is this Daniel using the royal we already? I don't, I don't think so. Maybe he's talking about he and his friends. That would make sense. We're going to tell you what it is. Or, or is it... God and me and my friends are going to tell you about this. I don't know exactly what's going on here, but that's a fascinating we. God's going to tell you, and I'm going to tell you because God told me to tell you. Daniel always shares the credit, which is another one of the things we really like about Daniel, but especially the constant reference to God as the source for all of it. So here I think Daniel primarily means God through me is going to tell you. 37, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom and the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hands he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Man, there's so much here we could unpack. For the sake of time, let me just give you a few things First of all, these this words that Daniel uses for Nebuchadnezzar are, um, man, they, they're, they're, it's nuts how positive they are. These are some of the same words that are used for God, the King of kings, to whom power and glory and blessing and honor, very similar language sometimes it is used for God. God has revealed 
the significance of Nebuchadnezzar to Daniel, and Daniel is now using this incredibly powerful language. Remember I talked about last week, one of the things we were going to see was the significance of obeying. I just read another article this morning about someone saying um, that, that it's wrong that churches aren't gathering because, um, because of this. And, that. and literally, I'm not kidding, one of the arguments was, um, well, yes, in Romans 13, it tells us we should obey the government, but we don't serve godly people. We don't serve godly leaders. We don't, our, our leaders aren't, in, aren't, aren't in, you know, in, invested in moral goodness. And, and therefore, that's one of the reasons why we shouldn't have to do what they say. And I'm like, again, the lack of understanding that, that Paul wrote that under the rule of Nero is just mind-boggling to me. We're going to see Daniel here talking to a king who's the kind of king who might have all his wise men torn to pieces because they can't tell him a dream. And I know we've had arbitrary leaders, and we have one now, but they don't, they don't do stuff like that. And yet Daniel is going to not only submit to Nebuchadnezzar's rule so long as it doesn't cause him to disobey God directly. We'll get there, by the way. We will see that played out. But here we have Daniel, inspired by God, incredibly deferential to Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to see Daniel do that well. He honors the king well. You okay the king of kings. But notice, he's not making a mistake here about where Nebuchadnezzar, what makes Nebuchadnezzar the king of kings. What gives Nebuchadnezzar the power and the might and the glory? The answer is, the God of heaven has done this for you. So it's so clear here, and that God, the God. By the way, the God of heaven is not a title for Marduk, the the main god of Babylon. It's not a title for Nebo. This is not a title for any of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar that his power comes from a god that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't even serve, maybe doesn't even know. And the language is so amazing. But this is what's wild. As, as we get here in a second, this is, this is key. Notice that the head of gold isn't the Babylonian empire. Now, obviously in a sense it is, but look at the language here that's so clear. You are the head of gold. This isn't just Babylon. I think it is Babylon, but it's not just Babylon. It is Babylon as represented by Nebuchadnezzar himself. This is, this is an amazing picture. This is, the, by the way, the face. Remember the face? The face he's looking at? The head is of a man, not a god, not a beast. It's an image of man. And man is the image of God. And this is a, this is a really cool picture to show that God is revealing something about man through the fact that this image, this statue, um, uh, C.S. Lewis years ago referenced the fact that we are an image of God, sort of like a statue is an image of us. It isn't us, but it reflects of us. It teaches about us. It shows something about us. And in the same way, we bear the image of God. And anytime you see the word image in this, in this context, you're going to want to at least reference back to that. That's got to be part of what at least Daniel is thinking about here. The head's not merely Babylon, but Nebuchadnezzar himself. And listen, Babylon, <coughs> before, after, before, during, and after Nebuchadnezzar, put out some pretty important stuff, some things that you use in your regular life. For example, the, our concept of maps comes from Babylon. The first, or at least one of the first written languages comes from Babylon. Modern agriculture, sailboats, wheels, chariots, 
Many of our modern mathematical systems all come from Babylon, often long before Nebuchadnezzar showed up. Maybe my, fam- my favorite as I looked at this was, was the fact that when you look down at your watch or when you look at the clock or whatever, have you ever wondered why there's 60 seconds in a minute or, or 60 minutes in an hour? That, why does that make any sense? Why did we divide up randomly into 60s? Well, it's because of the Babylonians. The Babylonians are the people who founded that concept because of their understanding of how long a year was, and it could be broken down. They thought a year was 360 days, and so it could all be broken down 60, 60, 60, 60, 60, and that's how they broke it all down because that's, that's, thank you, the Babylonians. Most of this was several thousand years of Babylonian culture before Nebuchadnezzar, but he is the greatest king, small g, of this greatest kingdom, small k, um, whoever lived, and therefore he is the head of gold. Verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Now, I I firmly agree that this is the Medo-Persians. The Persians are the ones who who represent the the kind of chest and arms of silver. Um, And then we'll get to the... Think of, when you think of the Medo-Persians, we will learn much more about them for our study of Daniel is done. This is the kingdom of Cyrus the Great, of Darius, of Xerxes. This is the empire that failed to conquer the Greeks. Think 300 Spartans. This is the kingdom of Esther. We'll talk again more about that later. A truly great and powerful society, but not Babylon. Then following that, the bronze section, I do think I agree with the traditional view that this is the Greeks who actually conquered the Persian Empire instead of being conquered by them. This is Alexander the Great, Philip of Macedon. When you think of of cities and the development of modern government systems, you think Greeks. Most modern philosophy, you think Greeks. The land of Athens, Sparta, Marathon, Byzantium, maybe near to our hearts as Bible scholars. The cities of Corinth, Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, Thessaloniki, and others. And then verse 40, there shall be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. This is classically understood to be Rome. And I I actually tend to agree with that as well. Recently, there's been a pretty compelling case made in some Christian literature that this is actually the kingdom of of Islam. Um, For various reasons, that's not my opinion, but there are many um, ways that people divide out these four kingdoms, all of these. Some go back before Daniel and try to include the Assyrians. Some think important ones get something that some important ones get left out, like the Egyptians. My opinion is that this is meant to explain and predict the great empires from Daniel to Jesus that subjugate Israel. And there will be more on each of them as we work through Daniel. So we've got plenty of time to dig into them before we're done with Daniel, believe me. Verse 41, and as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. Some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. Again, you can imagine if there's historical, if there's if there's theoretical differences on the gold, silver, bronze, and iron, there's certainly even much more about these feet of and toes of clay mixed with iron. There's various various historical kingdoms that could apply this could apply to. 
Um, one of the real common ones is the effort to unite, the European nations to unite, and they continually try. One of the main ways they tried that, especially during the feudal eras, was through intermarriage, and it always failed. Um, the failed attempts to do this. Others tried to conquer the European nations, um, <coughs> like Charlemagne, Napoleon, Hitler, European Union. None of them have worked out so well. None of them have managed to really unite. Also, some people write about this. They include modern-day failed efforts to unite the whole world, um, especially connected to the European Central Power, with like for the United Nations, international courts, Interpol, the World Health Organization, and we can see that those are not exactly uniting the world either. Perhaps efforts to mix various governing and economic systems and styles is what's being described here. Democracy, free market, socialism, communism, republicanism, monarchy, parliamentary government. Although some were very strong, there's always weakness intermixed. There has never been a unification like there has, like there was under Rome and since Rome. It's always part strong and part brittle. And the feet, the toes, obviously you have ten uh, toes. But we're not going to spend a lot of time here now. The number 10 is going to show up again, and we'll come back and re-reference this. And so we're going to wait on the number 10 before we try to unpack that. We just don't have much data here, and so um, we don't know if there's a lot of significance here or not. We'll come back to it. But I'm, uh, here's, here's, I'm going to explain here why I think the way I do about this. In the days, continuing on with Daniel, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure." Literally, this, plus we're going to get to even more, this, this prophecy, plus some of the ones that are going to follow, are why many secular scholars want to take Daniel from the 600 B.C.s and move him to the 100 B.C.s, because this is such an obvious prophecy about these kingdoms to come. Um, and the only explanation for that is that it must have been written after these kingdoms were in place, right? I mean, otherwise you would have to believe that somehow Daniel had supernatural knowledge about the future. Well, if, if you're secular, you're not allowed to believe that, so what you're left with is, well, it must have been written at another time. This is way too accurate to have been written in the 600s. Now, we're going we're to run into all kinds of problems with moving it to the 100s as well. In fact, we'll get there in the next few chapters. Moving it to the 100s creates just as many problems, <coughs> in my opinion, um, for a secularist. But uh, this, this is so clear, what's being described here, these different kingdoms. Um, it's pretty amazing. But notice, there's no question in the book of Daniel as to whether or not Daniel's just wicked smart. Now, over and over again, it is Daniel saying, it is from God that this was given. We saw that. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. The stone that is going to destroy all of these human kingdoms and then become a mountain itself, that's going to be a kingdom that destroys the other kingdoms and then is set up as a kingdom that never fails, is made 
quote, not with human hands. It's not a kingdom that we could create. It's not a kingdom we could even conceive of. This is not just a kingdom. This is the kingdom, the final kingdom. It was foretold by the prophets. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord of hosts is going to accomplish this. So, foretold by the prophets. It's announced in the fields outside of Bethlehem. Luke 2, 10 the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. This is the announcement of a new king. That's why the wise men came. They knew there was a king. A king had been born. So, foretold by prophets, announced by the angels, taught constantly by Jesus for three years. Matthew 4, 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So foretold by prophets. If you go back and study um, the parables, which I think we'll do someday, we'll go through the parable teachings. The vast majority of them begin, the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that was being prophesied by Daniel that would smash the world's kingdoms, foretold by the prophets, announced by the angels, taught by Jesus, initiated at the triumphal entry. Matthew 21, 9, and the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The son of David is a monarch title. It's a meaning in the line of King David that he's going to follow through and set up the throne of David. So initiated at the triumphal entry, at this, yeah, the triumphal entry, and someday it will crush the final remnant of the human kingdoms. So my belief, we discussed, well, well could it include, could, could the toes include um, modern society and European society, the way that, that essentially what the world runs by is a kind of Roman system. But then that would mean that the kingdom, that the stone did not crush before that, that the stone is waiting to crush. And I think maybe what we're looking at is what we always see very often is this initiation of the, the start of the kingdom, the starting of the initiation of the ending of the kingdom that would have started at the triumphal entry, for example. And yet the fulfillment, Jesus conquering his enemies, he didn't start with the human kingdoms. He didn't start with the feet of clay and iron. He started with the power behind the statue. He started with the powers behind that, the invisible enemies of God, sin and death and Satan and his minions. And he started by delivering the death blow to them and is continuing to live that out as, our, as his kingdom is lived out by his ambassadors on earth as he goes to prepare a place for us. And when he's done, he will come back and get us. And when that time comes, he will be like a king, 
There's some parables like this. He will be like a king who came and established his kingdom, but then went someplace else to take care of business. And it's not that his kingdom isn't here. It is, but it's not established. The king is not here fully yet. And there will come a time when he comes back to the kingdom that he has established and then begins to rule there instead. And so I think there is a sense in which his kingdom obviously has been established, it has been initiated, but we're not experiencing the fullness of it, and he has not even yet come and live as king on earth over the governments of the nation. Declared king, but then taking care of other matters in a foreign land. Daniel 2 continues, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. Now, we see in the Bible periodically, we see angels. Every once in a while, we'll see an angel will show up and someone will fall down and begin to worship this angel. And the angel's always like, no, no, don't, don't, don't do that. Like, stop, stop that. Don't do that. Like, they understand the significance of you don't worship me, right? That's really bad. This is, all this goes straight to God. Don't worship me. And here, I have to imagine Daniel doing the same thing, being extremely awkward and uncomfortable, like appreciating this, but at the same time kind of rolling his eyes like, hey, I think I made it pretty clear to you, Neb, that this was not me. It's not about me. And so Daniel is not the protagonist of Daniel's story. God is the protagonist of Daniel's story. So again, Nebuchadnezzar gets this. Maybe Daniel even steps in. 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, literally master of kings here, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now, I do have to stop, because we're going to run into this in Daniel a few times. We run into it throughout the Bible, and it's really hard for us as first century Christians. I think I was raised with the little flannel graphs of, of Daniel explaining this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of this, what happened was Nebuchadnezzar became a Christian. Okay, That he, he came forward and he knelt and he prayed the sinner's prayer and he asked Jesus into his heart and he joined the church and he started tithing. So I think it's important to start knowing like there was no church for Nebuchadnezzar to join. Um, there was not even essentially a land of Israel. There was no temple for him to go visit in Israel anymore like even if he had fully 100% converted to Judaism, because there was no Christianity yet, um, it still would have been an absurd concept, and there's no reason to think that that's what happened. Um, Instead, for us to understand, the way gods were related to at this time was that everybody had their gods. And and the the concept here wasn't that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, when when he conquered another land, he, he was not under any illusion that their God wasn't real. He believed their God was real. Apparently their God was just inferior to Marduk, his God, or to one of his other gods. And so we've taught about this. There's a great writing about this called The Gift of the Jews. Abraham really, through the leadership of Almighty God, brought monotheism kind of back. But but until then, what people had, <coughs> and, and Nebuchadnezzar would have had, is he would have had a pantheon of many, 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 many gods. He would have had multiple temples. I don't remember now, several dozen, if not several hundred temples throughout Babylon. And of course, the massive one to Marduk, probably in the middle. And so what you would have had is every time he conquered another nation, he would take their gods, which to him would be an idol. He would take that idol and he would bring it to Babylon, and he would put it in a temple. And the more important that God was, or the bigger and more powerful that country was, that God would probably get 
um, special privileges. Now, our special place in the pantheon. So, um, I had made uh, something to kind of help our brains, especially our Western brains, wrap around this. Um, so probably, there, remember, there's no idol for Yahweh. There's no statue for Yahweh. So I've always imagined in my head that what happened was Nebuchadnezzar, when he conquered Israel, at least had a plaque made. And so here you would have had somewhere in one of his temples, you would have had a plaque that would have said, God of the Jews, the God of heavens, or the way they called him, the Most High God. So again, you should imagine a room full of statues of different idols and stuff like that. And so hopefully you can see it okay. But the God of the Jews, the Most High God, we would have had a, um, maybe a plaque. I, I, maybe that's a little sarcastic, but what else are you going to do? You can't do a statue because that offends that very God. And so we don't know that Nebuchadnezzar knew anything about the God of the Jews. He probably honestly would have had very little respect for him. He had conquered Israel relatively easily. And so <clears throat> what, what, what did this God do? What kind of a God was he? Well, you see in this passage that my guess is what happened was now we finally, Nebuchadnezzar goes to his artisans and says, I need to add something hanging off the bottom of the plaque. And so what happened here is now if you want a sheep God, you pray to a sheep God. If you want a different God, you pray to that God. But if you want a God to reveal mysteries to you, then Daniel's God is a great choice. He is truly a master of gods. He is truly better because he had just watched all of his wise men and all of his holy men fail at something and then this God do it. Now, in particular, in what way was Yahweh, was the God of the Jews, in what way was he a master of gods? This. He was a revealer of mysteries. So we'll leave this hanging because um, it's going to get added to it as we go through this, uh, through this series because Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn a lot of different things about this. So here we go. So that's what he says. Trust truly your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and is a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now, then the king, <coughs> verse 48, then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him a ruler over the whole province of Babylon and a chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So here you have a kid, again, if we're guessing right, probably not 15 yet, maybe around there. And he's now the head prefect over many of the other prefects. His area of influence is Babylon. And so where he goes, he gets special um, attention and special deference wherever he goes. And now here's what's wild. That's verse 48. Notice, again, you know how much you like Daniel? Here's how much you like Daniel. Verse 49. So Daniel made a request of the king, and the king appointed, probably the king here, appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. I mean, he's just a good guy. He's just a good dude. He remembers his friends. Here he is in this moment. This has got to be this highlight moment. The most powerful man in the world has literally just fallen on his face in front of Daniel. He has honored Daniel's God as the revealer of mysteries. And then we have him turn to Daniel, give, give Daniel all this authority and all of this power. And Daniel says, hey, I've got these three friends that really kind of came with me through all this. They prayed with me. God, God listened to their prayers. And so I want you to, like, could, would, you, would you do something special for them too? And so he gives them essentially areas of, of influence outside 
of the city of Babylon itself and the outer regions probably or, or the, the um, subdivisions of Babylon. But then Daniel himself is going to stay right there in the king's court. Um, what's not to like about Daniel, man? So here we go. Once again, Daniel gives the credit. He shares credit with his friends because he's a good guy. But he, more importantly, he consistently pushes Nebuchadnezzar back to the truth that it is the God of heaven, it is the, the, high, the most high God who has given Nebuchadnezzar this insight. So again, Nebuchadnezzar's all excited about this, right? He's just been revealed that this great statue was not something for him to fear, that in fact the head of gold of this grand statue is himself. Man, that's a, that'll give you a high, won't it? Like, that's me. I'm the apex of human history moving forward. I mean, until there's this giant stone that crushes everything else. But until then, I am the apex of all of human history. Man, what should I do about that? How should I celebrate that? Well, you're going to find out starting next week in chapter 3. So, I want to pray again that we respond to what the Spirit is teaching us through this. Um, one, that we would not fall into the trap of the pride of God teaching us and revealing things to us. Um, and two, that we would be looking to Him to teach us and reveal things to us. So let me pray. Father, I'm so grateful for the power of Your Word and how exciting it is. I, I thank You that, that in an account like this where you have Neb a guy like Nebuchadnezzar, in the end, it's a teenage boy who, sh who has shown such deference and such honor for no other reason than that he was faithful to You. God, I pray that we are protected from ever trying to make our name great. Thank you for those silly little foolish things that we do to humble us again. That even in a sermon about praying to you and how important it is to remember to thank you, that we would miss thanking you. As painful as that is, Lord, it's a great reminder that it's about you, not us. It's not about me. It's about you and the revealed truth about who you are in your word. And I thank you for a guy like Daniel who is in a culture that is no friend to him and no friend to you, and yet he defers to you and is able to honor the king, and he figures out how to do that well and rightly and morally and correctly. And I thank you for the example of that. Thank you, Father. As we struggle sometimes and as we wrestle, keep our eyes focused on you. We don't obey our governors. We don't obey our leaders because they're so awesome. We do it because you are and you've told us to do so. We don't, we don't listen to our parents and obey them because they're so awesome, but because you've told us to do that and you're that awesome. We don't serve and sacrifice and submit to our spouses because they're so awesome, even when they are, but because you're so awesome. And you are the one who calls us to do that. We don't love and serve your church and one another because we're so worthy of that, but because you've called us to it. And I pray we'll be faithful to follow your son's commandment, to love one another even as he has loved us. Lord, help us to preserve and continue to pursue that in our lives. We're so grateful. You've been so faithful to us, especially through the power of your word. Thank you, Father, for that truth. Teach us what it is that you have for us that we need to do to live this out. We praise you for it, and we thank you for it in your son's magnificent name. Amen.